world of the Bible, lesson seven. Hey, everybody. What is going on? We are continuing our study, thinking about who's up there. We've thought about what's up there. Now we're moving into who's up there. And a quick recap of things we've talked about. Remember two lessons ago, we talked about those lights up there, and maybe there's more than what, than what meets the eye, if I can use a Transformers phrase, with these lights. They're created by God to separate light and dark, and that's actually something God did earlier in the chapter, in chapter one of Genesis. So it's almost like they're to continue to do what God started to do. He shares in his divine rule with the host of heaven. And they're called to rule over the day and the night in verse 18. And remember, humans are called to rule over the land. And so we end in Genesis 2.1 and learn that God has made host both of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And those hosts are ruling. So there's more here with these lights, apparently, within the vocabulary and understanding of the biblical author and audience. And along with that, last time we looked at that Hebrew word Elohim, and we thought a little bit more about this group of spiritual beings. And strangely, that word Elohim in Hebrew that you guys are familiar with hearing as a name for God is also used as a category for spiritual beings. The Hebrew word Elohim is like the English word feline. There's a large category within that, that um, the one ultimate one is a lion and a large category of Elohim or spiritual beings and the ultimate spiritual being, the one that made all others is the one creator God. So I want to, now that we have some of that vocabulary established, look into a specific group of spiritual beings that <clears throat> are mentioned in Psalm 82, verse 1. So this will be the, the verse that I use in our lesson to highlight this concept. Let me read it for you guys. Psalm 82, verse 1, God takes his stand in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, translated gods in most English translations, he renders justice. Maybe some translations say in the midst of the heavenly beings, but it's Elohim. So Elohim takes his stand in the divine council, and that Elohim is capital G God. In the midst of the other Elohim, God, capital G, renders justice. So this divine council is called a group of Elohim here. The first line that mentions divine council parallels the second line. That's how I got that concept. Huh. Let me read a couple more verses 
from, from the Psalms, one from Psalm 89, and then one from Job. See if you can start to hear language of this group called the Divine Council. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Did you hear how many times the divine council was referenced there? Assembly of holy ones, heavenly beings, council of holy ones, those who are around him, God of hosts. In Job 38, as God is thinking about creation and talking to Job, who is getting a bit of a, a theology lesson, in verse 7, God says, when speaking of creation, when the morning, when the stars of the morning sang together. Huh? Stars of the morning? Well, we've talked about stars a little bit. They don't sing. But notice the next line. And all the sons of God shouted aloud. The context of this is creation. These sons of God cannot be humans, I don't think, because it's talking about the creation of all things, including humans. But there are other sons of God that are present, and they're called the stars of the morning. And it seems to me that we have language for that now with our study and the sun, the moon, the stars, and looking at Genesis 1. So what's going on here? Who, who are the divine counsel? What's up with this? And, and how is this going to help us as we move forward, why does this matter? Let me read a segment again from the uh, Bible Project article that uh, I'll make a link to. So I hope you guys find this interesting and helpful. When many people think of spiritual beings in the Bible, it's usually God and angels or Satan and demons that come to mind. The biblical authors, however, had a much more nuanced conception of the spiritual realm which is matched by a wide vocabulary for talking about spiritual beings. In the study notes for episode two of the Spiritual Beings series, Elohim, we discover that the biblical words Elohim and Theos can refer to spiritual beings that are not the one creator God. But who are these other Elohim and what role do they play in the biblical story? That's what we'll discover as we look at the divine counsel. The biblical authors believed that heaven and earth are parallel realities, each inhabited by creatures that have been delegated with God's blessing to rule and oversee that realm. These creatures are called the host of heaven and the host of the land, Genesis 2.1, or spiritual beings and humans. In the heavens, the celestial lights are appointed to rule the day and night, that is, the order of time. Genesis 1, 14 through 18. On the land, humans are appointed as God's images to rule over the land, sea, and air creatures. Genesis 1, 26 through 30. 
This portrait of the ordered world is fundamental to understanding the biblical storyline, and it prepares us for an entire tier of creatures in the spiritual realm that we will meet at many points in the Bible. This group of spiritual beings goes by many titles, but in every appearance, their role in the heavenly realm is similar. They are God's staff team, his agents of delegated authority who mirror God's earthly staff um, team, the humans. These spiritual beings are portrayed as honoring the one who created and rules them, and they are invited by God to participate in making decisions and carrying them out. We see God's heavenly rulers referenced often throughout the Bible, but different titles are used for them. Psalm 89 contains the most diverse collection of titles. And this is the psalm, guys, that I read to you. So that's the, the, do you remember it says uh, the holy ones, the sons of God, the council of the holy ones, and the God of hosts. These various titles are used throughout much of Scripture. In both the following, Jeremiah and Job passages, the focus is on humans who occasionally get glimpses into God's heavenly throne room to overhear what God is discussing with his divine counsel. In the book of Job, these words are ironic because while Job, of course, does not have access to the divine counsel to know why he's suffering, the reader actually does because of Job chapters 1 and 2. So let me actually read a couple of these references that uh, you're probably familiar with. The First Kings 22 reference, it's verses 19 through 22, is this is just so, I remember when I was in high school, and I guys, I just had no idea what was going on with this. Let me read it. First Kings 22, 19 through 22. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. There you go. Um, and then in Job 1, there's the reference here, verses 6 and 7. Now, one day, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them, the Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Many more references. I think we've got enough here to work with. Let me read a, a quote in the article from Michael Heiser in uh, the Divine Council Dictionary of the Old Testament. When all these texts are read together, a fair, fairly clear picture emerges. God is consistently depicted on his heavenly throne, surrounded by his staff team who participate in discussing and then carrying out God's plans. The divine throne room is the place from which Yahweh governs the world with his heavenly council the place where Yahweh decrees 
directing the human community and the divine world are set forth and through whom they are communicated and enacted. So, a few final thoughts. The role of the divine council. This concept helps us make sense of one popular and puzzling passage in Isaiah 6. I'll read it. Verses 1 through 4 and 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. We'll talk about seraphim later, guys. Each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, two his feet, two he flew. And one called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah pipes up and says, Here am I, send me. Notice that Isaiah is having a vision of the divine throne room and sees Yahweh exalted, surrounded by spiritual beings. Then in verse 8, Yahweh speaks to represent both himself, whom shall I send, and the divine council, who will go for us. In all these texts, we see a positive portrayal of the divine council functioning in their ideal role. And notice how their role is parallel to the role of humans. God's representatives honor their creator and their king and carry out his purposes on heaven and on earth. But the biblical story, so here's the money, guys. Why are we talking about this, right? Here's the money part. This uh, article section ends here. But the biblical story is driven by a plot conflict about a rebellion against God in both the heavenly and earthly realms. And I'm, I'm going to stop there because I don't want to get into those rebellions uh, just yet. I want to just lay the groundwork for this. But I, I recognize that this is just weird. This is weird stuff. Growing up, I didn't hear this. I, I felt like the spiritual world was just something that wasn't talked about. And it was kind of avoided, and some of these passages didn't know what to do with it. But getting a framework like this, I hope, is helpful. I want to talk next time about angels. I want to talk about seraphim and cherubim. And then I think we'll be ready to talk about rebellious spiritual beings. And we'll talk about some of the divine counsel. We'll dive into Genesis 6. And we'll talk about the Satan. And we'll talk about demons and giants. Oh my. So we have a a fascinating study ahead of us. But again, the hope is that this fills out the, the portrait of what's going on in the spiritual world. We are very comfortable recognizing that the spiritual world and the physical world overlap, and that there are spiritual beings that influence humans. I think you would be comfortable with saying that's what's going on in Genesis 3, with the serpent. So it continues, of course, all throughout the Bible into the New Testament. And is Jesus confronted by an evil, rebellious spiritual being as well? And how does he handle that? And what does Paul mean in Colossians chapter 2 when he says, 
Jesus has disarmed spiritual evil on the cross. So that's where all this is going to go. And I hope that as we think about the world of the Bible and the world um, around the Israelite audience, that these things will become more clear. Because you wouldn't be surprised to hear, I didn't talk about it in this lesson, and I don't know if I will, but did other nations in the ancient world believe in a pantheon of spiritual beings, a pantheon of gods? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they all did. And of course, a very famous pantheon would be the Greco-Roman mythological pantheon. So this is in the air and in the ideas of the ancient world and the Greco-Roman world. And that's the vocabulary that's present in the Bible as well. And we should not be surprised by any of this. This is how God communicates. One thing of note in all of this, as I wrap up, I recognize it gets tricky at times to say, well, wait a minute. If God is communicating just in ways they would understand, how much of this is a reflection of what is accurate to reality? And I think that's a fair question. But it does seem to me that as you read the biblical text, the description of the spiritual reality is used in vocabulary of that culture. However, I don't think that necessarily means that those spiritual beings are not real. So, and of course, I think we're all comfortable with that. So I recognize the tension, but I think there's a balance here. God communicates in ways they'll understand, but that communication is going to be unique. Remember, the methods are normal. The message is unique. And I think the same can still fit here as we think about the divine counsel. What's going to be crazy is the claims made in the Bible about this members of the divine council and how they are related to a rebellion um, with humans and how they are related to nations like Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. And that's where some smack talk comes in. That's where the uncommon, unique message comes in, where the Bible is offering a critique of all those other nations and their gods. So a lot more to say. I hope this is helpful and encouraging. See you next time.